and thanks for joining us once again in Core Ideas, the podcast where we delve into all things related to lake sediments. As always, my name is Adam Jesiorski, joined by my good friend Josh Steenpont. Hey, how's it going, everyone? <laughs> and uh, today we are continuing our current arc, looking at current topics in the world of paleolimnology, and we're going to discuss algal blooms. And we have an extra special guest here, as we've brought in an expert on cyanobacterial blooms. Um, Dr. Liz Favot, uh, who we both know quite well. She is an ex-perlite uh, and a former colleague, but she recently graduated, just late last year, finished her PhD, and now works for the Federation of Ontario Cottagers Associations, or FOCA, as the Assistant Lake Stewardship Coordinator. Uh, so thanks for joining us, Liz. Thanks for having me. That was, I thought you were wrong when you said late last year, and then I realized, oh, right, we're into 2021 already. <laughs> well, technically, I did defend at the end of January. Oh, okay. Even more recent than that. Wow. Newly minted. Newly minted Doctor of Lakes. Very good. Well, yeah, thanks for coming on. Uh, because this is, uh, this is a topic that we've, we've kind of talked a little bit about algal blooms and eutrophication and the linkage or lack of linkage between those things. A couple times we talked a little bit about the methods, but we've never really had a full dive into the topic. Uh, and, and it really is a topical one. And that's probably because Adam and I don't know that much about it. So it's good to have someone else on. Absolutely. Um, yeah, because Liz's graduate work was entirely focused on blooms. Is that correct? Like, it, there was no other kind of digressions. It was all blooms all the time. No, nope, yeah, pretty much just focusing on the long-term drivers of recent blooms. Fantastic. Okay, um, long-term drivers of recent blooms. That's an interesting one to <laughs> to put together. The 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 benefits and the useful things that paleolimnology is for. So that's good to good to get into that. All right. So um, I guess. Before we get started, we just point out that you know we are focused on lakes, and so we're going to really focus on the limnological aspect of uh, cyanobacterial blooms. But this is, in terms of sheer scale, very much a marine issue. In terms of, I guess, the volume and size of blooms that occur on the planet. But here we're talking about impacts on freshwaters, um, and uh, maybe kind of throw it to you, Liz, to get us started. Like, what are cyanobacteria? Yeah, so cyanobacteria are the world's oldest photosynthetic bacteria or and also like the world's oldest photosynthesizers. Um, so they're, they're a lot different from the other algae that we look at because they're prokaryotic compared to like the other algae groups like the diatoms and the green algae that are eukaryotic. So they're just a really ancient form of life that's ubiquitous in our environment that lives everywhere that has some light it lives on glaciers it lives um, in antarctic lakes that are permanently ice covered um, in all the oceans and all the lakes so yeah they're cyanobacteria are everywhere <laughs> and they're really old organisms and um these would historically i'm not sure when the distinction appeared but if you hit a textbook old enough they have been called the blue-green algae. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, and that's where like a lot of the misconception comes from, like that people call them algae, but they're not. They're actually a lot different from all of the other algae groups. <laughs> and at one point, they were called cyanophyta. Is another group name that people refer to them as a whole phylum of life. So, there's a lot of confusing names around such tiny little things that have been around for such a long time period. Yeah. That one I only found out recently too. Like I think I called them cyanophytes in my thesis, and John Small was like, "No, like that's outdated. You can't call them that anymore. Cyanobacteria <laughs> only." Do you have a sense of when that when blue green algae got phased out? Because I don't know if I'm crazy or if I would have remembered that from like high school textbooks, or am I like I don't know misremembering? Doesn't matter. Doesn't. Matter. I don't know when it got phased out. Yeah. Well, it's still it's still by far the most common thing you hear them referred to as. Yeah, and th in that the is media, yeah. still blue green algae. Like. Mm -hmm. Is that is that a problem? 
Like, <laughs> yeah. I think it's kind of a problem. Yeah. Yeah, I do. Because like, well, I don't know. And then people start getting mixed up and call them like green blue algae or green algae and they don't really know actually what they're talking about. And like I said, like cyanobacteria are so much different from the other algae groups. So I really think we should just call them cyanobacteria. It's not that hard a word. <laughs> I think that's important because if it's just a nerdy taxonomy thing among scientists, so that who cares? But no, I, I agree. I think there is a, a difference and, and all algae get painted with a bad brush because of a, a lot of times things that people are associating with cyanobacteria. Not to say other algae aren't gross in some ways, but in, in some types, depending on what's going on. But uh, no, I agree. And one, one of the main issues about algae that gets people unhappy in general is when there are blooms of them, whether they're green algae, whether they're maybe not diatom blooms don't necessarily uh, annoy people too much, but certainly cyano blooms. So one thing I guess we could start at, is there a, a true definition of what a bloom is? Uh, and also, how would we distinguish the difference between uh, sort of air quotes, normal bloom that would, would occur and one that maybe people actually should start to worry about? So I think that's like another big issue is that there there isn't a specific definition of a bloom. Um, like it's generally considered when there's a visible accumulation of algae, um, but you can measure that in different ways. Like you can measure it through cell counts or um, concentrations of a, a certain photosynthetic pigment um, or percentage of the algal community that's made up of by one certain species or a certain group of species. So no, there's no, there's no scientific definition of a bloom and there's different ways to measure it. And at the same time, like telling a blue green algal bloom apart from other types of, of algal blooms or um, even just other phenomena in the water can be really difficult just to do by eye. Um, when you look at under a microscope, it's pretty easy, but for example, like there's lots of calls that come into the government about even just like pollen on the water being confused for blue green, for blue green algae. And I think because they're not always like the same, they can be, they can be red, red colored blooms that are cyanobacteria. So they don't always look the same. So it's hard to tell just by eye. <laughs> yeah. That turquoise paint is not always going to be what you see. Uh, often yeah but but not always it makes it a big problem yeah Mm -hmm. but they can be harmful and that that is a concern so there are reasons to be concerned if you have large accumulations of cyanobacteria in your cottage lake or your lake that you live on um and and some taxa tend to form those kind of issues and and others just don't are a little bit less uh less problematic so there's some that uh we should be more concerned about is that um where we where should we start with those guys i guess yeah i think so i mean like well there's like 2700 about named species of cyanobacteria and there's probably only like a couple dozen that that form blooms in fresh waters and um there's like some really common groups that form blooms that can be harmful um, so like I can think of some of the pelagic bloom formers off the top of my head. It's like microcystis groups, anabaina, which is now called Dolichosperma, gliotrichia or phanazomenon. And then there's also some benthic bloom formers. But yeah, out of like the thousands of species of cyanobacteria that there are, there's lots of pico cyanobacteria or really small cyanobacteria that live unicellularly just by themselves and don't form blooms. So there's really, it's more like the colonial and filamentous forms that form these blooms that can be harmful for many different reasons. They can be harmful. So going back to the bloom kind of definition or as much of the one there is, um, how much of it is a visual? Can you have a problematic bloom that isn't basically invisible or small enough that people can actually notice it? Or if you don't, is it one of those things that, because the definite, you know, when you see pictures in the newspapers and 
on the internet and stuff when they're talking about blooms are talking about like peace like there's no way you won't go you know what i'm gonna go get a nice glass of that uh water and throw it back <laughs> uh everyone be like oh that's disgusting keep it away from me but um when we're talking about the harmful ones in terms of toxins and whatnot um can they go unnoticed i guess is what i'm kind of trying to get at on a visual level yeah i yeah i definitely think they can because like when you see those big, sometimes like you can get scums in, rather than a bloom, which is um, more rare and it's like specific weather conditions that will cause a bloom to turn into a scum. And usually it has to do with the cells losing their buoyancy control. But yeah, you can have, because the toxins are, some cyanobacteria produce toxins and they can be released from the cells um, and live in the water or persist in the water, not living, they're just chemicals, persist in the water for several weeks after the bloom is gone and they're not visible. So, or yeah, the bloom can be dispersed throughout the water column and might not, might not be obvious to the naked eye. So they can be harmful and you can have a bloom even when it's not super obvious, like some of those classic photos that they always post when they say there's a bloom. Yeah, that's like the main thing that, because I don't know a lot about this topic, but when we get asked uh, by the local group around town that is on uh, centered on this lake that we live on, Lake Scugog, because there are recent issues with blooms, is that just because you see a bloom doesn't mean that it's producing toxins. And mm -hmm. just because the bloom is now gone, it doesn't mean the toxins are gone either if they were ever there to begin with. And trying to get that disconnect uh into people's minds is that once it's gone it's not flushed away necessarily there could easily be still harmful potential effects is i think the hardest challenge at least in our local community definitely yeah i don't i don't think we have the technology yet to, or like the manpower to be able to test enough to so like say there is a bloom and it is producing toxins then we just kind of like our governments here kind of just like leave the lake as like potentially dangerous until the end of the season and we don't really have the testing to be able to like give the all clear which really sucks for people living on the lake yeah i could walk down and i'd have to wipe the snow off of the sign that says blue green algae stay out of the water in lake scugog but it's still there like it's yeah. been it's been driven into the ground that sign is living on this lake forever that's just don't yeah. go in the water in the downtown area it's, that's now the the, the standard it's that when do you have any sense of when that sign went in yeah i, I could yeah i could tell you the day I, if i searched in my emails it was a very busy day uh yeah it was a couple of years ago three years ago probably something like that in the summer and uh yeah and and it was you know it's not particularly surprising like if people had been working on this lake for a while you go out to the lake you'll find microcystis out in the lake You'll find Annabine or what I forgot what the new name you just said that I, I probably will never remember. <laughs> yeah, forgot it again. Thanks, uh, <laughs> but uh, but not in huge concentrations. And yeah, it, so uh, and in in our community, like it it is often linked in terms of this lake to the areas where the nutrients are the highest. Like that's that's the linkage in Lake Skookog. I'm sure there's other things we can talk about, but it is in the areas where the nutrients are the highest from runoff from the town. So there is a really strong relationship with with eutrophication, at least in, in local areas in Lake Skookog. But that's not always the case. And I think that's another interesting thing that people are maybe not aware of. Yeah. Okay. Um, but yeah, so... I guess in terms of causes, we can get into in a second, but also want to. So we've mentioned neurotoxins, um, and I guess a real common one um, would also be just uh, taste and odor issues as well, right? Like, I mean, on one on one case, yes, it can be incredibly dangerous, um, but there's also the whole, I guess, more widespread issue of unpleasantness associated associated with them all, with it all as well. And, um, uh, yeah, it kind of ties into, I remember years ago, um, you know, a colleague was dealing with a member of the public and, you know, the complaint was, you got to do something about this lakes keep, uh, you know, when the blooms are going on this lake, 
uh, every time I walk down to the shore, I, I vomit. And it's like the, the, you know, glib answer is, well, why don't you stop walking down there? And um, in a lot of cases, <laughs> that's not necessarily possible uh, when it's either your backyard or where you're getting um, uh, your drinking water from um, or various other reasons. But um, it's, it is a fairly big deal on a whole bunch of levels, not the least of which is um, basically property value impacts as well. Like uh, there's a huge level of concern about blooms and I'm sure um, you know, there's gotta be some sort of, uh, like I'm just talking about like hesitation, I guess, or extreme concern of like, you know, especially you talk about Lake Sugog, the sign going in three years ago. Um, I think, you know, a lot of deliberation of like, do we need a permanent sign or do we not need a permanent sign? Does that affect the classification of a particular lake and what are the impacts for the community broadly and things like that? Um, it's, uh, um, yeah. Sure. It's like the sign's like 200 meters from the marina. You know, the, the guy who owns that place has to, tell people it's okay to get in the boat and go out and catch fish out in the lake and maybe keep them. Uh, so there's all sorts of those linkages. Absolutely. Uh, I, I often dream about being able to afford to buy a cottage. And one of the things I would definitely do is look up the, the history of that lake and its algal community, its nutrient status, those kind of things. Even, even though I know, you know, that, that it, this is something that does happen you can't help it. And, uh, if you weren't able to process the nuance of that, like someone who maybe hasn't listened to this episode of the podcast, uh, that's, that's a definite issue. Yeah. I think it's an issue for like the people who are trying to study this as well, because like, I think if people who live on, on small lakes and they've, they've heard about blue green algae and how it can impact property values. If, they see a bloom that I think a lot of people are hesitant to report it too. If there's only a few cottages on the lake. That's a good, yeah, that's a very good point. Yeah. That's not a solvable problem in terms of like, I mean, on a broad level of um, education, um, you know, it's like, I think there'll always be an element of if we stick our head in the sand, maybe this problem will go away. And it's not until it's like, super recurring that uh it's like you know there's a capitulation so all right can we do anything about it but i guess that means we'll have to use paleolimnological techniques on all of these lakes to reconstruct <laughs> the history of blooms <laughs> well let's go there then <clears throat> so <laughs> not so subtle segue josh <laughs> So I guess um, uh, the next thing is, so we kind of covered blooms and what they are a little bit, um, but uh, links to eutrophication. Um, and do we know, what, and I guess this was like a focal point of, as you mentioned, of your, your uh, thesis, um, investigating the causes of blooms and are blooms getting more frequent? Can you give a definitive answer to those two questions? Well, I guess starting with the beginning one, are blooms becoming no. more frequent? Is that an easy question to answer? No, even that one's not. Like it looks, it certainly from the records from the last couple of decades, it looks like they're becoming more frequent. Yeah. And that's from multiple different record types, like from reports, from people who live on lakes, as well as from satellite data. It looks like they're coming, becoming more frequent, more severe and in more water bodies. But um, we don't really have longer term records than that. And it's really indirect to try to figure it out from the paleo record. But there's no doubt they're not new. Like the, this is yeah. not a, a thing that didn't occur in the past. Uh, there's lots of old records of blooms. Like in like Voyager's diaries and things like that of like disgusting yeah. slicks on lakes of green. I don't, I don't know what, how, what the result phraseology they'd have used to describe it but just very obviously they're describing an algal bloom in in the you know language of the day um so they're a naturally occurring thing i guess but teasing apart of are they a naturally occurring thing that is becoming more common is is the trick 
on the million dollar question. Exactly. I mean, are, and are we doing it? You know, is it linked to something as opposed to a more long-term cycle? Yeah. That's complicated. Yeah. <laughs> and and part of that comes from the the many reasons that blooms can form and the how many how many species did you say? 2700, but the that's just name species. The group probably has like 6000 or something. Yeah, thousands of different species, all of which, you know, they're not all one. Just because they have one name doesn't mean they're all responding in the same way. So there's lots of variety in what's driving different taxa to proliferate. It's a very complicated yeah. question. I can see why it takes so much energy to, to try and put it together. Um, so and then another aspect I guess we can touch on before we kind of start teasing about potential causes would be there's definitely the um, – the short-term nature of the blooms, like you mentioned that there can still be dangers after um, the blooms have dissipated. But like, you know, what would what would you characterize a short bloom versus a long bloom, Liz, in, in, in your research or your neck of the woods? Like, do you get blooms that I get blooms that last for days? Yeah. Do you get blooms that last for weeks? Do you get blooms that last for hours? Like uh, how long and short, like this is where I have no idea of like what the mins and max of the ranges would be. Like, have you heard of anything yeah. being just a couple, I've seen, couple hours I've long? I've seen one up, I've seen one that was just a couple hours long. Okay. Uh, which like, well, but it's because it depends like where the currents are going and stuff too. Like I wasn't looking at an entire lake. I was just looking at like a bay <laughs> where the current was going into but okay still it was visible from like noon to maybe when when it got dark and then the next morning it was gone so that's like the shortest i've seen so like on the on an order of like days maybe a day or hours versus like the lake i studied in algonquin park and it's not the only lake in algonquin park with blooms i'll say that but um it had a bloom that lasted, it came on unusually early, like early June, um, and lasted through till like into September. I don't even know. If it might have even been. Oh, wow. Okay. It probably went away with turnover in the fall. Oh, but yeah, an entire God. season. Yeah. Wow. Okay. I, I didn't think, I, I was going to say like a month, months of be stretches. Yeah, that's got to be like, that's stretching to a good significant portion of the open water season. Uh, yeah. 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 And I've heard of like they can be they can be permanent in some lakes like in tropical areas, so. Okay. So I I guess uh one thing that really bounced out of me when you're talking there about uh um the one that lasts a couple of hours um is the ephemeral aspect of these and how that ties into making it particularly hard to define because if you're talking about currents and a bloom just taking place in one bay um, and it just happened for a couple of hours and, you know, was there a bloom in that lake? You know, it's like, there's, there's all the, there's no hard edges or lines to cross, I guess, or there's great, lots of gradations, I guess, as yes, this small part of the lake blooms regularly when the wind is blowing in a particular direction in a particular time of year. Yeah, exactly. It gets really tricky. It kind of reminds me, I heard an analogy. I don't even know where I heard it. It's probably another podcast or something I was listening to of like complicated problems. And then they tied it to an onion and peeling the layers back. And like, I've heard that one before. And then someone said, but you have to uh, shed a lot of tears before you get to the middle. But that has like, that has issues for all sorts of like, you can't, the likelihood that you get a clear sentinel image a remote sensing image that can visualize that that catches it on that kind of duration is almost impossible like the, the repeat time is 18 days so that's your chance that's your window if it's not going to hit that landsat is 16 days something in that range and uh the pixel size is so much bigger so you're never going to actually see it on on those data who is going to go and buy like spot data for the lake for every day that they want to find there. It's impossible to do that with remote sensing. Um, 
So of course they're being missed. Maybe a summer, an entire summer <laughs> of uh, of a bloom, but that makes it a real challenge to see from the from space for some of these more remote locations. Yeah, definitely. Has I don't even know. I don't really know a lot about remote sensing and if it's got gotten good enough to be able to do like some of the smaller lakes too, because. Yeah, that would all come down to the to the platform. It's been used quite a bit in the marine environment, as you would imagine, where you get big open areas. You get the general open ocean is quite dark in color, so it's visually quite an easy comparison to pick out with some of these classification techniques. But for a small lake, you know, the the smallest freely available uh, pixel size would be on the order of ten meters uh, square. So. Uh, you're not getting a lot of pixels on a fairly small lake. You might get, you know, 10 or 20 across. So that makes it quite a challenge. And there's nothing to compare to the open water environment. So, And then also, this is where I'm totally talking about my butt and maybe totally wrong. But my little bit I do know about remote sensing is I think there'd be a difference in um, if you're talking about a surface bloom versus a deeper bloom. Like I'm not sure entirely how much penetration the various... Um, I guess sensing imaging technologies can do. I don't know. Like, do you know anything about that, Josh? Like, could could, a, could, could remote sensing be used for um, subsurface blooms? Like, I literally know almost nothing. I've helped someone take measurements. That's about the extent of it. Yeah, no, probably not. Not common. Uh, maybe very limited penetration in the water. I mean, most of the the platform forms are uh, just reflecting incident light you know it's just what's being reflected back a bunch across a bunch of different wavelengths so some of the wavelengths that penetrate deeper into water would maybe be able to reflect off of those blooms but they would have to be at a really high concentration they tend as the platform gets to those longer wavelengths that the pixel sizes get bigger too so you would lose spatial resolution anyway so it's, it would be an issue there are platforms that are active sensors. You might be able to do things like that, but they would probably blow right through an algal cell in the same way that it did through water right down to the bed. So, uh, yeah, no, that, that's a, a very good point. If it's not on the surface, if it's not a, effectively a color difference that you're you're picking out, uh, that's going to be a big problem. Hmm. That's interesting. I've, yeah, I've gone on like NASA what is it worldview and just like flipped through the days and looked at my study lakes. I've only been able to like visually see a bloom from that satellite data. And I don't know, it must amalgamate like all different satellites because you can get like there's daily data, but, and I can only see a bloom on that lake in Algonquin park. That's the only one I can see. And they, these are like confirmed blooms. So, so there you go. We got to find something else. You got to be on the ground to pick these things out. I know they're ephemeral. Even people looking for them will miss them, I guess, in like small cottage lakes, you know, depending on there's only a couple of cottages on the lake and there's not someone there. Every single day, blooms could be missed. Um, so I guess we're at the point where if only there was some tool set that could somehow indirectly measure the environmental history of lakes. And could that possibly be useful in the study of cyanobacterial blooms. I don't know. What do you think, guys? Yeah. I'm, I'm not, not coming stumped? up with anything. Uh, <laughs> Paleolimnology um, might, uh, <laughs> might be a good approach. And I believe you guys might know something about it. So, um, as someone that has, I imagine there are... Um, Basically, I guess, are cyanobacteria a useful paleolimnological indicator, Liz? Do they leave a record directly in the sediments? Um, it's, yeah, like kind of, actually, some of them. Okay. If, if they have resting cysts, those persist um, for thousands of years. So, but not all cyanobacteria make those resting cells. It's only certain certain types of actually really common bloom formers so that's useful um okay like a, a phantasomenon and a bain, uh, those groups form these resting cells that you can use in sediment records so that's like a direct tracer but like microcystis or something no you have to you have to look at their pigments preserved in the sediments okay so it's a mixed bag what are they made out of 
I, I honestly have no idea. What are, what are the acnetes or heterocysts? Which is it? Acnetes. Acnetes. Uh, what are they? What are they made out of? Like, do you know what the what's so resistant to thousands of years? That's amazing. Yeah, it, and actually, what's even more amazing is that they can be viable for that long. Oh, the, really? There's like, I think it's like Legrand 2019. It's a pretty recent paper, but yeah, they found that a 2,700 year old acne that was still viable. Oh my goodness. Okay. Has there been, okay, that's an interesting tangent. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really cool. I like, I think it would be really cool if people started doing like resurrection ecology experiments with them and stuff. I don't know what you would do, but it would just be really cool to see like a 2,700 year old sand bacteria wake up. Just look at their DNA, see how much they've changed. Like, as bacteria, you do imagine they're highly, uh, that's true, like likely to, to alter them, or maybe Mutable. not. Maybe they're the same they've been for thousands of years. Yeah. Cause I could just think of like, I mean, I, I'm, got a huge bias to clodocerans and what I've read and definitely this some cool resurrection ecology stuff where they've done again over maybe 50 to 100 years um, of hatching of resting eggs and then doing like competition not competitions I guess um, toxicity comparisons between you know the extant population and great 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 grandmothers kind of thing to see how has there been um some i guess adaptation on a community level to whatever the stressor of interest would be and i think you know doing that over yeah we've done some of that stuff with the mining mining work and uh much bigger scale do you have any idea approximately how many like of the, you said of the ones that are likely to form blooms, some of them leave those behind. So that's good. Uh, and for the others, where do, what do we have to think about using instead? Yeah. So for, for the others, uh, then we have to turn to photosynthetic pigment tracers in the sediment, which are not, they're useful too. But I I like the idea of like a physical fossil because with the pigments you get kind of like uh, issues of like preservation more than, than a physical fossil, I think. Yeah. I think, uh, in terms of, uh, intuitiveness and, uh, in terms of wrapping your head around what the changes are, you know, relative abundances of an individual fossil is a little, it's definitely conceptually easier to deal with just before, again, before we move on to pigments. So the actual resting cysts, do they, how do you isolate them? Do they show up with diatom slides? Are they around in numbers that you can do counts of them on their own? Are you looking at ratios of them to diatoms? Or I, I'm not sure I'm like spitballing here in terms of when you're looking through the scope and you're quantifying cysts, what are you doing them in relation to? Yeah, I think there's I think there's different ways to do it. The way they were done for the study lakes that I looked at them for, um, I think they were they can be isolated in the same way pollen is, I think. Um, that's how they, they were done for mine. And they for my cores, they were counted as a ratio to like pollen, green, al green algae, because green algae actually leave like a trace too, like pediastrum, like certain types of green algae. Um, but anyway, yeah, they were counted as like a ratio to all of the other fossils that were left in that sample. And how much sediment do you need for those? Um, like, are they abundant? I guess, very little. Or is it hard to find them? Not a lot. Okay. Very. Okay. Yeah. And that was in, they were, I got, I had them done from Dixon Lake. So that's where like, they shouldn't have, that lake's like very unimpacted. And the blooms we saw in 2015, we were pretty sure were the, none had been recorded before that. So, um, we didn't expect to find a lot down core and still it, it only took a little, little bit of sediment to be able to find them throughout the core. So it was like 0.1 dry, I think. I guess the, the next question is how do you go from that to bloom though, from presence of the species to lots and lots of them? Is it the same thing that there's no real cutoff as to what not only that, I guess the conditions that cause them to 
produce cysts are not always necessarily the same that are you know if there's a bloom everything's going really well and generally things create cysts when things are getting a little rough so how do you deal with that sort of issue yeah that's exactly it i think i think the thing is we're never going to be able to look at the paleo record and say okay this uh, there's some indications here in the sediment record that at this time period there was more cyanobacteria like there's more pigments or more acne fossils or whatever but we're never going to be able to say okay that was a bloom like i d- i don't i don't think there's hard thresholds for that because of the nature or the is it like is that a whole bunch of things coming together is that like the ephemeral nature of like you know you could have a bloom that only lasts a couple of hours versus a bloom that lasts a season and it'll just all get lost in the average of a multi-annual slice of sediment or that as well as what's leaving the most record in the sediment is of when things are are rough as opposed to when things are awesome and there's lots of blooming material i think it's more the more the first part um but yeah like certainly it's true what josh josh was saying before that like when they make acne it's when conditions are not favorable but still you you would expect that if there's more cyanobacteria like at the end of the season when things aren't favorable there's more cells making those resting cells so you'd get more acnes makes sense for sure and with the same kind of um sense i guess of like not not being able to identify blooms still hold over when you're looking at pigments does a lot of pigment not really give you an indication at least in recent sediments of a bloom or is it the same kind of thing it just is a dilution effect and blooms are too ephemeral to really nail it down yeah i think it's that i think it's that same thing i mean maybe maybe like you can look at it and see an increase and be like okay like if there's any time that there's likely to be a bloom in this lake it's all it's when the cyanobacterial pigments or are the highest but i still don't think we can say for sure if it's back in time and you saw that same level that that those two things were the same in the lake and both were blooms or something when you have a high point of pigments Right. Yeah. That makes sense. So that's, that's kind of a bummer. Yeah, it is. But I think the paleo is still useful <laughs> because it, you can look at time periods when blooms were most likely happening. Like how would that, like what, like how would that work like when they were most likely happening? Do you have an example? Um. Well, just like when, when pig- pigments belonging to cyanobacteria were the highest or when nutrients were the highest. Um, that's that if you were going to have a bloom in that lake, that's probably when it happened. And so like, I don't know if this is the best example, but like in Dixon Lake, that's the one in, in Algonquin Park. We looked at like five different paleo proxies because First, we looked at the diatoms, and there's absolutely no change throughout the 300-year record. And we're like, okay, so there's nutrients haven't really changed in this lake. Like, what's going on? There's no indication that climate warming is impacting the lake in the diatoms. Um, then we looked at chronomids, not a ton of change, a little bit. Cladocerins, chlorophyll A increasing. It's the highest at the top of the core. So it does look like algal production is the highest now than it's ever been. Um, and then that we looked at the acnes as well, which were in extremely low abundance throughout the core. Like they only found like, I think like 10 fossils per interval. And then at the very top of the core, they found 300. So we, if you looked at that out of context, so we know at the very top of the core, a bloom happened, like those sediments correspond to 2015, which is when we saw the bloom in the lake. Um, but if you just look at those fossils, like that's when a bloom would be most likely to occur. That's when you had the highest acnes and highest um, chlorophyll A pigments preserved in the last 300 year period. Who knows what happened before that? So, so what's so strange about this lake, this lake for all of us, including Adam and I, uh, can you paint a picture of this, this little lake? Cause it sounds crazy <laughs> a bloom that lasts the whole summer in 2015 
Yeah, it's a crazy lake. Actually, when we went there too, so I visited the lake in August 2015 while this like summer long bloom was going on. Um, and we took an oxygen profile from the middle of the lake and the lake's 18 meters deep there and the bottom nine meters had less than a milligram of oxygen. And there's lake trout in this lake. Um, and there are not for long. It's, it's a, like a flag. Not, yeah, not anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like Hark- Harkness Fisheries Lab is obviously in the park and is like really involved in monitoring the fish in that lake. And they said they seem to be doing okay. They must be going somewhere else. Like it's connected to another big lake, so they must be trying to find oxygen elsewhere. But yeah, it's a very strange lake because. You know, usually everybody ties like nutrient nutrient increases to blooms forming in a lake, but there's there's nothing on this lake. There's nothing in the catchment of this lake, um, like no development. No, there was there was historically there was logging in the catchment, like in the mid 1800s, but it's recovered. It's it's all the entire uh, catchment is forested, and it it doesn't look like from the diatom records or like the sparse. Uh, measure measured chemistry that we have that nutrient inputs have increased at all so there's obviously something else that's going on that's triggering the blooms what else could it be (laughs) uh well i think it could be related to climate warming a longer growing season Uh, okay yeah and and maybe changes in subtle changes in internal nutrient loading there wouldn't be like a large pool of sediment nutrients to be released because this is like a fairly remote and pristine lake, but it, there might be some some changes going on with oxygen as well, or just a longer growing season. Okay. Um, before we go any, any deeper, um, is it a unique lake within Algon? Is this happening to any other lakes in Algonquin that you know of? Or is this like, could this be a bit of a, um, a sea change about to happen? Like, is, is it, in what, is it particularly big? Is it particularly deep? Is it, um, particularly large? Like, is there anything particularly unique that would say, you know, this is just a weird lake? Outside of the fact of the algal bloom, yeah, like I've ra- I've kind of like racked my brain about about it, and like because that's what everyone wants to know, right? It's like why this lake, and then, but there ha there are other lakes in the park that have um, had some blooms, like uh, Lake of Two Rivers, which is on right on the Highway sixty corridor and has some cottages on it, and that one was a, a big deal because like Dixon's in the interior, like not a lot of people go go through you have to like portage like two kilometers or something to get to it um but lake of two rivers has had blooms too and it's it's phosphorus is even lower like the phosphorus in dixon lake is like around 10 um in lake of two rivers it's like five or like four (laughs) um and it's had blooms too um but yeah no dixon's not particularly not even the most tenuous of eutrophication angle connections there yeah yeah i just pulled it up on google earth it's in the middle of you got to go a ways to get in there yeah we flew in so it was okay <laughs> yeah well that's good for, for sampling but yeah no it's uh, how did they even recognize was it uh people who were uh, paddling who was it a plane came up with this show them? i think it, i think it was a flyover like someone like fire patrol kind of general flyovers who noticed it first but yeah that was apparently the first time the park had to be like okay we we need to do something about this and and they shut down the lake to camping because i guess you know people when they're camping draw water from the lake and and try to filter it to drink it and they did toxin like measurements and stuff and they detected toxins they weren't they weren't um in exceedance of the water quality guideline drinking water quality guideline but still interesting and and no one really knows (laughs) like the ultimate answer why they happen there and and will they keep happening in other lakes um 
because they have popped up in Lake of Two Rivers. And um, I've looked at like algal because we have phytoplankton data from, I think, 50, 55 lakes in the park that we got that summer in 2015. And I'm just scanning some of them. I've seen that like gliotrichia and some of them has been over 50% of the algal community. So that's a cyanobacteria that's capable of producing toxins too. A lot of, a lot of work still to do. <laughs> yeah. 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 I don't know what, I don't know what set sticks in a park that it could fuel such big blooms those two years. Um, I guess, uh, bunch of questions are bouncing in my mind right now um so one of them is in terms of like conditions becoming right for cyanobacteria i'm is it a kind of a situation where everything is already everywhere and there's a when the conditions are right they explode like or is there any kind of evidence in literature is there an introduction aspect to it all or is this they're always there on some low level and um conditions are changing to the point that they're really liking it I, I think for the most part, it's it's that they're always there at some low level and now conditions are right. And like there are some algal samples from Dixon Lake, for example, from I think the it might they might even go back to the 60s. And like you can see the same species are there. They're just in much, much lower abundance. But there are some cyanobacteria species like uh, Cylindrospermopsis. Rasiborski. I'm going to say that wrong. But if you guys have heard of that one, people argue that it's invasive okay. and has spread up into Canada now. So that's kind of, that's a weird one. But I think for the most part, it's that they're always there. And then conditions are right for them to kind of take over and become out of balance with the rest of the algal community. When, I guess, did, so this was in 2015 that the full summer bloom happened yeah so in terms of concern about rising algal blooms like in terms of an environmental stressor of concern when did that kind of pop up into the radar writ large like is it a relative is that like were people in like 2000 really like was algal blooms on a lot of people's radar 20 years ago 30 years ago 40 years ago like when did it kind of like interest kick up in terms of are the question being raised or are these blooms becoming more frequent do you have any i guess real general sense of that i think so i mean people talk about like the 60s and 70s like algal blooms being like people were concerned about them and the link was made with with nutrient pollution and then like if we're thinking of just like lake erie and like the great lakes and then things got better and concern went away for a while. And then just since like 1990, the blooms have started to come back uh, worse or like as severe as they were way back when, even though nutrient pollution inputs have declined substantially. Is it largely in the same places or are we talking about different places? Whereas, you know, the eutrophication blooms, they went away, but now we're almost talking about like, blooms in oligotrophic lakes which is kind of almost a exactly. totally separate suite of lakes and exactly you know, yeah and i think that that's just been like the last like 15 years maybe maybe yeah 15 10 or 15 um because there's a whole bunch of moving parts at the same time because at the same time you've got recovery from acidification happening at the same time i i've talked you know with multiple people on lake shores where they said you know i remember when i was a kid this lake was like a swimming pool and it's like that was probably because it had a ph of four and uh you know <laughs> yeah um and there was nothing living in it because nothing could live in it it wasn't an indication of the health of the lake um and uh exactly yeah and so is a is there an element of recovery from acidification and the rebrowning of lakes tied into all of this as well? Like as DOC rises um, as part of a continental scale recovery from acidification, or is that tied into the same story? Uh, it definitely could be in some lakes. Like I don't think in all lakes, but there's definitely active research going on about that. Um, yeah. In the lakes I've studied, like I know that 
um, DOC now is still kind of recovering from from acidification. So, but yeah, it definitely ties into the story because it, it affects thermal dynamics, um, which then affect and like light light penetration, which affects the algal community greatly. So, yeah, it's definitely it's we're in like a new era, like multiple stressors coming together um, that we've never seen in the past um, because we have re- recovery from acidification, climate change. Um, and eutrophication all happening at once so yeah and especially in low trophic lakes and then the complexity of like internal loading in a you know lake that only has like five uh micrograms per liter of total phosphorus like i mean you know that that's a complicated mess <laughs> yeah 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 those lakes are not supposed to be anoxic <laughs> There's, no. there shouldn't be internal loading in those lakes yeah although like because that's been really that was really big in my thesis is like i'm like looking at the midges and i'm like oh is there like is the anoxia worse could internal loading be worse now but diane orahel was on my committee and she's like well you don't you don't have to have bottom water anoxia to have internal loading so that's something to consider too <laughs> And like warming temperatures can exacerbate internal loading. So this is uh, so y- yours was not the final thesis on this in this work. Is no, I study? think a, yeah, I definitely think a lot more needs to be done. What okay? Uh, what do you think would be particularly interesting directions to go as someone who's just finished a thesis and um, you know I've been there as well in terms of you know four four and a half years ago. Um, I set out to address a bunch of questions. Now I know more. I could probably ask some better questions if I was able to do it all over again. Um, and I know with my own graduate research, what I would have liked changed at the beginning to get better answers. Um, was there anything like that for you? Like now, just on the at the exit, to put you on the spot a little bit, I guess. But in terms of, um, or what are the more, what is really emerging as like if you were to do another thesis what kind of questions would you be looking to uh ask like basically for a brand new graduate student going into this what do you think would be particularly interesting uh i think what what's always kind of like what's sticking out in my mind recently is like okay so if if climate change climate warming is making these blooms worse like what aspect of that is is making them worse is it the stratification like that they can because they have buoyancy regulation they they can outcompete other algae under more stratified conditions or is it literally the temperature um or is it internal loading so i think that kind of needs to be teased apart better which is not i'm not sure if that's a paleo question it's part of it then where it, in terms of where the difficulties for paleo if it is such a relatively recent thing just since the 90s writ large and just since like 2015 in this particular lake is there just not enough of a record to really tease that apart with paleo data yet or is that less of an issue yeah exactly like i i think i think it'll get better as we have longer in dixon lake like how deep did you have to go to get to 2015 sediment wise it was just just the top 0.5 0.5 centimeters. Okay. Yeah. So then it's like you're looking at one sample that represents the blooms bloom period in this lake and trying to compare to that. And I had other lakes where it was like that too. Like there was only two recorded blooms. And so I was trying to figure out what's different about those intervals. But I think, yeah, and lakes with like a longer and more clear bloom history, um, it would be easier to try to compare. It was better in like, I don't know, like Calendar Bay of Lake Nipissing that I looked at because they've had blooms there almost every year since 2010. So that was like a little bit better okay. in the sediment record to have Tw- like, twice as long. I think that was like three centimeters to look at that represented the bloom period. So yeah, strikes me as the kind of thing where Favre Lakes would be particularly useful. Definitely. Yeah. Which like, I guess there's, have you guys heard of Sunfish Lake? I think no. uh, where, I think it's like near Kitchener, but it has it has varves. 
and we're we're like doing some DNA work and spectral pigment work on that one to try to look at bloom history in that lake. Um, but it has its blooms are weird because they're like deep layer like oscillatoria blooms at the metalimnion. So, but still, yeah, it should be it should be interesting to see with a varved record if it's more clear. Yeah, it's a start. You just need to find more lakes and more more records. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, I definitely think like even just using the same techniques I did, but on a larger scale or like more lakes would be good. <laughs> I think, I don't know, some of the lakes like Calendar Bay was the most, it's, it's nice when like I looked at the record and could see like nutrients declining, blooms increasing, and like a clear climate signal in the diatoms. And like lower oxygen inferred from the chronomids. And I'm like, okay, like it's obviously like this is a traditionally polymictic bay that has now become more stratified. And it was heavily impacted in the past. So it obviously has a lot of nutrients in the bottom waters. And now it's stratifying and there's internal load and that's fueling the blooms. And then we even had some like measured bottom water phosphorus that was like 77 compared to like micrograms per liter compared to like. 13 in the surface waters and it's like okay well that's a clear that's a clear story like it's a clearly climate mediated blooms are happening but in most lakes it wasn't that clear at all <laughs> but still uh, it's good to have those stories as well like i mean um yeah it's a great story to be able to tell as well in terms of when things make sense they make sense you know and uh mm-hmm. um you know when some of the complexity is stripped away. Um, but uh, oh, that's really cool. Um, yeah, all, all of the research that I've seen in, uh, in terms of the talks and papers that I've read uh, over the last couple of years have been cool. Um, and uh, Thanks, I, I've, Adam. I've been, no, I've been <laughs> definitely interested in, along, the, along the way. And, um, you know, I have a keen interest in this story generally, as well as your stuff. And uh, we'd be watching watching to see if you know the veils of ignorance can be pushed back just a little bit more and maybe some answers will uh, um you know start to emerge in terms of the paleo record as the paleo records get longer yeah i think there will be progress eventually yeah and we never even got to talk about what it's like to leave academia and go work at the uh, federation of cottage of cottagers association whatever the acronym is so we'll have to have Liz on for another episode uh, as we explore moving beyond <clears throat> the uh, the Ivory Tower because I think that's a, another uh, another place that she would be a good guest um, <laughs> because you instantly get thrown into the like the the uh, line of fire of people who are interested in these issues and want to know the answers and maybe aren't so willing to accept, well, I don't know, that's a complicated question beats me. There's like a hundred answers why that might be the case. Um, and that's not easy either. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So on, you know, that note of, uh, cyanobacterial blooms are complex, but we do know more about them than we did both an hour ago and, uh, um, a, several years ago. Uh, thanks for coming to talk to us, Liz. It's, uh, I've really enjoyed it. Thanks for having me. Once again, thanks for listening to Core Ideas, the podcast dedicated to all things paleolimnology. If you'd like to reach out to us with a question or a comment, please send us an email to coreideaspodcast, all one word, at gmail.com. Or you can contact us through Twitter at coreideaspaleo, and that's P-A-L-E-O. All our past episodes and their corresponding show notes slash blog posts can be found at our website, coreideas.ajeziorski.ca. That's coreideas, all one word, ajeziorski, A-J-E-Z-I-O-R-S-K-I dot C-A. And if you're so inclined, you can give us a rating or subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, SoundCloud, Spotify, uh, wherever you get your podcasts. Those five-star ratings would be great, but to be honest, we don't really care all that much. We're, we're just doing this for fun. And that's it for now. But join us again next time as we continue to explore paleolimnology in the knowledge economy era, sticking to our ethos of pure knowledge without the economy. <laughs>